Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Might have heard tell that Virginia had themselves some elections here recently. It got a lot of noise, especially with Glenn Youngkin pulling what a lot of people thought was an upset against former Governor Terry McAuliffe. Now, there's all kinds of things that get slammed into a race like this. The midterms are coming up next year. Uh, The news cycle hit just perfect where we have a high-profile race without a whole lot of other things going on. And it fit into some existing narratives with the Biden administration kind of bogged down on Capitol Hill. He did get the infrastructure bill right after this election and reconciliation stalling. A lot of people want to put what's going on on top of what happened in the Virginia elections. But we wanted to wait until the dust settled a little bit because we do what we always say we do here on Hertel. We turn down the noise and get to the information you need. Well, with elections, it usually takes a couple days to get that information because all the data has got to come in. The votes have got to come in. And the trends have to be analyzed by people that know what they're talking about with it beyond just who won, but why they won, who powered them to victory, and what was the issues and the demographics of who those folks are. So we're going to turn to our friends at Elections Daily once again, this time Joe Samaski. Now, Elections Daily, you can find them at elections-daily.com. I've been using them for a long time for a lot of things. We've had their editor-in-chief, Eric Cunningham, on Herdtel before, helping us break down some election stuff. And Joe's no different. He's been covering uh, Virginia for them. He goes to university in Virginia. He's very familiar with this state. And we're not just going to talk about the buzzwords and the things that came out of the end of the election. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of it because the primary process that kicked off Glenn Youngkin's run to the state house in Virginia is part of this story that has not been covered as much. So we're going to cover all that. We're going to turn down the noise on this very important election. And we're also going to talk about how much will it translate to 2022? What does it mean in Virginia? What did the down ballot tickets mean? We're going to talk to it with Joe Samansky of Elections Daily. He's going to explain it to us. We're going to get into it. Data, information, analysis, not yelling and screaming and just shoehorning stuff in the narratives. That's what we do on Hertel, And we're going to do it today right after this. I'm thrilled to be joined with Joe Samansky, guy who had a very big day uh, covering the Virginia elections for Elections Daily. You all have heard me talk about them, how big a fan I am. Uh, Y'all really had a moment in the sun with the Virginia elections. Congratulations on that. Uh, How'd that work out for you? The decision desk tie-in? Uh, Virginia is a state you know really, really well, and we're looking forward to your insight. Just how was that election night in Virginia for somebody that had uh, more than a little bit of skin in the game this time? You know, it was it was something really incredible. You know, when uh, when Eric told us of uh, the week prior that the deal was going to be done before uh, election night, and that we were going to get to have all these cool, uh, 
you know, options open to us, especially with what they did on the website with us having just the results right there on Elections Daily on our web page with the link to the stream. I mean, that was something incredible. Uh, something that when before we started, this was way out of the imagination of what I what I thought we were going to be able to do. So to be able to have that right there, to have uh, such a good stream we had, I think we we set a, we definitely broke all of our records uh, for stream viewers for continuous stream viewers. We broke two hundred continuous viewers uh, for the first time ever, which we consider a massive victory, yeah. considering uh, we had you know competition from everywhere. Everyone was covering these races. Yeah. So the fact that little old us were able to be there to have as good of a stream as we did and to have as successful as the night we did uh, was, was really something special to me. And it was a big thrill for me to watch you have an election night coverage that Twitter didn't shut you down and block your account over uh, for <laughs> folks that don't remember that story. The big kind of the big rollout for election daily was supposed to be the 2020 elections and uh, things got a little bit sideways for y'all, didn't it? <laughs> Yes, uh, I was I was the only one who lost their own personal account that night, too. I was also shut down for two weeks wow. uh, because of that uh, block, because I was the one who was on the account uh, when it got shut down. So that just shut down all the accounts that I had access to. So I was, I was also shut down for two weeks and a little bit concerned. But, uh, you know, obviously we've had no issues. Like I said, very successful night. We've continued to see very good levels of growth. And um, I mean, it's, again, just a fantastic night for the website in Virginia. Uh, as a whole. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm very open that I use you as a, both as a writer and a commentary. I've used your guys' stuff for a while. I've got a pretty good relationship with uh, Eric Cunningham and some of your other writers and highly suggest people check out elections-daily.com. Uh, it's a great, gra I hate to call it grassroots because you're big time now, but y'all just kind of, hey, we can do election coverage better and you just went and started doing it and that's the kind of media I like to support. So well done there. Before we get into the politics of Virginia, though, um, I jokingly call it least Virginia because I'm from the correct Virginia, but just personally, because we we've been talking about numbers and politics and all that, just the state of Virginia, the people of Virginia, just your background. What does Virginia mean to you? Because we've been talking about it just in a political sense. Give us your own personal view of Virginia, what it means to you, the people, the places of it. Yeah. You know, I'm originally a Pennsylvania boy. Uh, that's where I was grown and raised, but my family, especially on my dad's side has a lot of deep tied roots to the state. Uh, I go to college there now. I'm currently a, a student at George Mason University, which is in Fairfax, Virginia, which is in, uh, that's in the northern part of the state. Uh, my grandparents, when they were first married, my grandfather was uh, put here in Arlington for the first two years of their marriage together. They were in Arlington and uh, they were actually uh, lived in Old Town Alexandria oh, for a time as well. So, and my dad, uh, he went to Virginia Tech. That's where he went to school. That was his four-year university. So, you know, this, this state does have a lot of deep ties to me. Uh, I love it. I do. I think it's a fantastic state. I consider it a second home uh, at this point. You know, it has, you know, people who are incredibly friendly, incredibly generous. You know, they have a very deep connected roots to their families and their friends. And there's just a great sense of connectedness here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. You know, I, I have grown to love the state and I'm very happy to call it a second home for a lot of us. Yeah, it's a great state, especially right now, because Virginia Tech does not have the Black Diamond Trophy. It is safely ensconced in Morgantown, uh, West Virginia, where I'm from, but we won't get into all that. I got to throw that out there. We, we had to wait a long time because of the stupid conference realignment to get our trophy back, but we have it back now. Uh, I, but I miss that stuff. I hope they get back to doing those sorts of things. I, I, too, have ties to Virginia. I'm a West Virginia guy, obviously, the history there. 
Um, but let's let's go back in history a little bit before we get into Glenn Youngkin, uh, Terry McAuliffe. This story actually doesn't start with the campaign. It doesn't even really start with Terry McAuliffe, the race he ran. It doesn't start with the demos and the stats that Elections Daily always talks about. I think this story, and this hasn't been talked about too much in the uh, in the the autopsies here. This story was really formed when Virginia did something really unique with their primaries and put Youngkin on the ballot as their primary guy. Talk people through that process because they may have never even heard that story, how weird it was, uh, the things that went in. It was a big controversy at the time you were involved in that. Tell people, let's go back to that primary because that really set up this whole Glenn Youngkin thing in a big way. And it's an important part of the story, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was, again, I just, I started covering Virginia. I kind of said that right after uh, the elections were all done and sorted. So basically right after the Georgia Senate, the two Georgia Senate runoffs were completed, I was going to cover Virginia. And as we were getting into about late January, it was becoming increasingly clear that it looked like the Republican party of Virginia were going to hold a convention instead of a statewide primary. So what that means is that uh, it's based a convention is not open to the public. Basically, it's not open right. to independence because in Virginia, they have open primaries because there's no party registration. You can just go and vote whichever primary you want once you ask for that ballot at your polling station if you hold a primary. But in a convention, the party controls the process. You have to register within the party to go to your convention to be part of the convention. And it was really uh, surprising that they did one uh, this year specifically because of still especially back last winter, uh, there were still, you know, concerns about COVID and what a condensed convention would mean. So after they decided to pass this, they decided, yes, we're going to go with the convention. Uh, they were told that they were going to hold it as a drive-through in one location at Liberty University. Uh, as it came out a day later that Liberty University had absolutely no idea uh, that this was happening for them. It, it turned out that Liberty had no idea that they were hosting this big event about two days after they had graduated all their students uh, for the summertime, you know, so that eventually turned into a much bigger controversy. Uh, people were brought in. Uh, RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel was brought in for a certain period of time because of another issue when it came to uh, letting people with religious exemptions vote in the convention. There was an issue with that, that uh, the chairwoman had to be brought into. And what eventually was settled on was a drive through unassembled convention where each uh, district had uh, a certain couple of polling, uh, you know, convention locations where people would literally, and I was there at the one in Fairfax or the MF district, people would literally get in their cars, they would wait in a big line and you would have supporters from all different types of candidates round up around, rounded up around you, pointing you where to go and also asking you to support their candidate and you would get your ballot in your car, you would fill it out and put it in an envelope and then hand it to someone as you left and then it went into a box as it was then delivered to a hotel in Richmond uh, for them to be counted in a three-day process. And it was a long three-day process. Uh, it was a busy three-day process because the GOP also used what I think a lot of people would call a smart decision of using ranked choice voting uh, when they did these races. And with uh, eight gubernatorial candidates on the ballot, uh, two of them not very serious, uh, you know, it, that made a big difference. And what that allowed Glenn Youngkin to do was not only did it allow him to not nearly spend as much money as he would have had to do uh, if he was running in a primary statewide, uh, it allowed him to really kind of focus in on getting his people and getting certain people registered that he knew would support him at the convention. 
And that really paid off for him in the end. Uh, you know, he kind of just ran this very, you know, non-consensus campaign, unlike Pete Snyder, who was kind of his main rival in that convention. He didn't really get into it with someone like an Amanda Chase, who was on the far right side of the primary. But he also wasn't, you know, someone who had, you know, marketed himself as a more modern option like Kirk Cox either. He had kind of planted himself firmly in the middle there, and that allowed him to pull it out and win in the end and, and how- become the Republican nominee. Yeah, and how much of it was because the one of the big dynamics from the right side of the uh, spectrum politically for this race was the fact that Youngkin, how was he going to deal with the Donald Trump issue? He kind of wanted to keep him a bit at arm's length without being offensive about it. If he had to have a long drawn out primary with somebody like an Amanda Chase, who is very much a firebrand, has been very controversial even in her current uh, elected capacity. Uh, he got to sidestep a lot of that. That doesn't happen if he has to spend a couple months fighting it out with Trump supporters. Trump probably would not have picked Youngkin as his nominee out of that batch. We're assuming that, but that's probably safe to say. That dynamic of the race started because of this convention, and he got to kind of sidestep all that, did he not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When it comes down to a convention, you know, these are already all party loyalists. These aren't people who need to be convinced necessarily that you are right wing or anything. If you're running a convention, these people are already generally pretty right wing. You know, the endorsement of whatever right wing figure doesn't really matter. And I think it showed that Trump decided to kind of not really weigh in on the primary on the convention because there's so many outside, you know, outside uh, issues when you're running convention that endorsements don't really matter as much unless you're holding an actual assembled convention where people can sometimes change votes based on who their candidate endorses, you know, that's a big deal. And uh, that's something that, you know, again, wasn't able to happen this year because it was an unassembled convention and because we used ranked choice voting. So uh, again, those endorsements really kind of flew out of the water and allowed them to become this inner circle embedded race where young can could again, like you said, avoid Trump a little bit and just say, I'm going to be someone who's going to run for you for governor. And I'm going to also, and this was another key factor. He said, I'm going to be someone who's going to be able to self-fund this race. So that way we can match the money machine that is Terry McAuliffe. And I know that was something that definitely put in a good amount of people over the top, which was that, you know what? I know this guy. I like him a lot. And I, but also what puts me over the edge is that I know he can compete with McAuliffe in the money game. And uh, that turned out to all be true in the same, and in the general election. Now it was controversial to do the convention method, but you're a student of history. You're a student of electoral history specifically. It wasn't too long ago. This is how things were decided. Presidential elections, it was decided at conventions, a lot of the governorships, uh, when the Senate changed models, when congressmen. This is how business got done politically back in the day. Now, it wasn't a drive through the craziness that we saw at Liberty necessarily, but the convention model was something that was pretty normal in American politics in living memory. Do you think this is something that maybe people are going to look at and go, huh, we got our candidate we wanted, we won. Maybe we should look at trying to make this more of a permanent thing because there's been calls for that before. Now they got some empirical evidence of it. Do you see that going forward? Somebody might try to replicate this and go back to that more often. You know, I think it really also comes down to, again, the way how they did this convention. I think doing a convention with this unassembled format and with the, I think, crucially the ranked choice voting format. Uh, you know, the Republicans have held conventions before in 2013. Uh, they held a convention for their for their nominees, and that didn't go as well. You know, that kicked Bill Bowling out of the race for Ken Cuccinelli. That saw E.W. Jackson yeah. nominated for lieutenant governor, who did 
you know, objectively horrible compared to the other two candidates. The attorney general's race didn't end up badly. That was, you know, Mark Openshine, who was a perfectly fine candidate. And it was uh, pretty too bad, in my opinion, that he lost that race by as close as he did. But, you know, I think how the Virginia GOP did it this time, specifically with ranked choice voting, I think doing it the way of ranked choice voting, which then doesn't allow for kind of the usual convention shenanigans of trying to convince separate groups of people to vote for you, doing it by the ranked choice voting method, uh, I think does it a, does the convention method a lot better. And if they go forward and decide, you know, a convention method would then mean we would include ranked choice voting. I think that's something that I could look to see supporting, quite honestly, if they did it in that way as a member of the party. Hmm. All right. So the Youngkin gets the nomination. He's up against Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe is a well-known entity. He was governor before. He comes out of the Clinton machine. He was the DNC chair for a while. Uh, did the baggage hurt him? Uh, before we get into the, cam- the campaign that he actually ran, just name recognition-wise, obviously, Virginia knows him very well. He's got all these connections. Uh, what was his standing coming in the race? Because he was heavily favored by just about anybody you talk to about this race, that he should win this. Virginia's trended bluer and bluer. What what was his standing coming into this race, really? Because now, in, in hindsight, people are picking apart. But when he came in, this looked pretty much like a sure bet, didn't it? Yeah, and I, honestly, that analysis made sense. Uh, when McAuliffe left office, he had an above 3% approval rating. Uh, people in the state generally liked him. They saw him as someone who could work with what was at the time a pretty Republican legislature. But I think, you know, that's maybe where it kind of went wrong. And maybe that's why, you know, getting into the campaign, I think maybe where the misstep was is that McAuliffe never really talked about that time between 2013 and 2017. And when I've talked to some people, some think that it's because of that when he was governor in thir- from 13 to 17, that was with that heavy Republican legislature. And some were worried that that would bring him the counteraction for some of these House of Delegate candidates to say, Terry McAuliffe, you know, when he was good as governor was when he had to work with us in the Republican ha- in a Republican House of Delegates. So even if you want to elect Terry McAuliffe, if you want him to be at his best, you need to elect me to the House of Delegates. And I know that was a campaign strategy that some Democrats were concerned about. And that's, my, I think, potentially one of the reasons why I didn't see him mention what was, again, to a good to a majority of Virginians, a successful term as governor from 2013 to 2017. I have been writing, you tell me if I'm wrong here, I have been writing and talking in media about the main dynamic of this race. We can talk about Glenn Youngkin and what he did and the Trump dynamic and what it means for the midterms and all this. With the built-in electoral advantages, the name recognition, every discussion of this election has to start with Terry McAuliffe ran a bad campaign, right? Yes. Uh, I, I, I don't think Anyone can disagree with this now. And I, and I kind of was kind of the one raising the alarm on this in the first case. Uh, I, I obviously I wouldn't that wouldn't be something that would be treated seriously by a Democratic strategist, considering I am a you know, member of the Republican Party myself. But I was kind of looking at this even in like June and May. And I was like, man, this guy hasn't really said anything. But, you know, let, we need to stop Donald Trump in Virginia, even though Trump is no longer on the ballot and he is no longer in office. He's not on the ballot. It it didn't really make any sense. And unlike Youngkin, who did kind of transfer his message in around the August, September period, who I criticized Youngkin himself saying he needs to get a true message going. And he did. Uh, I don't really ever think McCall have changed that. It reminded me a lot of Trump's 2020 strategy, actually, 
where Trump clearly thought he was going to run against Bernie Sanders. And if you, you know, heard the use right. of the word socialism a lot in, in his right. general campaign, he didn't really change it for when it turned out that Joe Biden got the nomination. Uh, and I think McAuliffe thought that because Republicans are doing a primary, that that would lead to a chase nomination. And he kind of focused his message around that, where I think if any of those people were paying attention in his campaign, they would have realized, you know, Amanda Chase isn't going to get this win. It's going to be one of Pete Snyder or Glenn Youngkin. And uh, that's that's what turned out to happen is, you know, and that again, but no one realized that no one seemed willing to change the message. And I obviously we saw the results last Tuesday. Uh, it turned out to be a, a not a big defeat, but a devastating defeat for Democrats in Virginia. And I was one of the ones that got it wrong because I thought even with him sliding, the momentum was clearly against uh, Terry McAuliffe. He he had some real gaffes that we'll get into later on when we break down the numbers. Uh, he ran a poor campaign, but again, numeric. I thought he would still slide it out just because of the numerical advantages, because of the historical trends of what was going on in Virginia. I was wrong. Most everybody else was wrong. Elections Daily got it right. You were very close. You said it was going to be about a two-point win. That's a, close to what it was statistically. What did you see that you got it right? Because you, I, I know enough about y'all. You don't do these things willy-nilly. You put thought in it. How did you get this right? Not just that you got it right, but how did you get it right? What trends were you looking at besides just the political headlines that said, hey, McAuliffe's in trouble and Youngkin's going to pull this thing out? The behind the scenes of the Monday uh, when I was writing the article, I had, I had finished my school, my um, uh, my classes that morning, and I was back in my apartment here uh, starting to finish up the article that was going to go the next morning about our ratings. And, you know, there was a large argument going on in our group, in our, you know, director's group chat of, of kind of like the top six guys uh, who have run the site, which includes me, whether or not we should call these races or if we want to shift them all to toss-ups and leave them there. And we, we were heavily considering breaking precedent and leaving at least the governor's and lieutenant governor's races as, as toss-ups because we were like, we really don't know what's going to happen there. And uh, in the end, as we were kind of continuing to discuss the numbers and what we were looking for and what we were looking at, you know, my mind kind of flashed back to uh, – to Georgia when we were discussing rating Georgia in the runoffs in early 2021 and how we were like, look, there's clearly something going on here, but we think the normal fundamentals of the state will play out and Republicans will win those two seats. And obviously we were wrong there. And I thought back to that moment. And I was like, we see the momentum. It is not only showing up in what we're seeing on the ground, but also in data, you know, the fundamentals of the state matter but clearly something is happening here that's breaking the fundamentals. And we, I don't think we should make that same mistake again. And I even said this in the article when I was talking about the governor's race. I said, I remember when we ignored this in Georgia and that cost us when we called the Republicans when it should have been for the Democrats. Mm. And, uh, you know, I made that call saying, look, there are fundamentals in the state of Virginia that say that Terry McAuliffe should pull out a narrow win. But everything that we've seen in the data and what we've heard on the ground and the momentum that we've been seeing from Glenn Youngkin from the last two to three weeks showed us that he was going to get that narrow win. And that's that's in the end. That's exactly what happened is that Glenn Youngkin was able to get that narrow win. 
And let's compare those two real quick, because in Georgia, especially with now Senator Warnock's race, uh, that race got really personal. It got really ugly. That drove turnout in his base, especially minority base. Uh, what was it in the Youngkin and the Terry McAuliffe race? What was driving that change that was breaking the fundamentals? Was it a demographic? Was it an issue like the schools that we've heard so much on? Was it uh, turnout being depressed or raised? What was the thing that really flagged in your mind of this is what's abnormal and this is what I need to pay attention to? You know, I think what ended up being almost abnormal was honestly what happened in Southwest Virginia. Uh, I mean, we saw numbers for Glenn Youngkin there that were higher by double digits even than what Donald Trump got both there in both 2016 and 2020. You know, absolutely insane numbers in the in the high 80s in a lot of those Southwest counties. And those are small counties. Those are small counties, mind you. But, you know, when he's getting that, you know, 8% swing in Northern Virginia and he's getting the flips in those, you know, swingy places in, you know, the Virginia Beach Tidewater area and in the Southern Richard Field, Richmond suburbs, you know, when he's getting those high margins uh, in that part of Southwest Virginia, that really tells me something people down there are just frustrated enough with Democrats that I would think even those who were probably Democrats for Joe Biden in 2020, uh, the last remaining few, the really kind of some of the last remaining few down there were, you know, put their hands and were like, you know what, we're going to turn out, but we're going to turn out for Glenn Youngkin instead. And I think even more so than education, I, I'd say what's going on with the economy. And I think Youngkin's attacks on the gas tax and uh, the grocery tax that exists in Virginia, especially when we're going through this time of inflation uh, that doesn't seem to have a lot of closeness to stopping right now. Uh, that's something that I think resonated a lot down there in an area that is poor, that does not have necessarily the same amount of means as, you know, we, as, you know, places like where I have up in Northern Virginia. You know, I think that message resonated a lot, saying that he's going to cut taxes immediately. He's going to try and get our their economy back on track and that he's going to try and make sure that you don't have to spend as much as you're spending right now. I think that mattered a lot. And for folks that don't know, the Southwest Virginia area, this is a rural area. This was traditionally a blue area. This is where what we used to call blue dog Democrats, the Withful area, out even maybe as far as the Martinsville area. These are places that uh, used to be a lot of furniture industry that is now gone. These are more rural areas. These are voters that keep turning up in these elections that turned out for Trump, turned out for Biden. Now they're turning out for Yunkin. This seems to be a developing trend that's not candidate specific, but is very touchy to economic things and very touchy to messaging, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I as much as I think the education stuff did matter in certain areas, I do think that mattered in Loudoun County uh, to swing it as far as it did compared to 2020. But I think down in the South was really where we saw Youngkin's economic message uh, really pay off and, you know, really give him that extra little boost that he needed to, you know, get into the to, to get that victor. Yeah. So there's been a lot of ballyhooing about it. Tell me who that was. You've seen the data now. You've done it. Who were the Biden Youngkin voters? Now, of course, we can't broad brush everybody, but we've we had enough data. It's settled. You've had a chance to look at it. They're talking about who would vote for Biden and then turn around and vote for Youngkin. Who are they? I think they are almost certainly uh, white women of, of all educations in Loudoun County, Virginia Beach and Chesapeake. You know, those those and I would say Prince William to a certain extent, but there's some other swings in Prince William 
uh, that don't necessarily say they're always uh, white suburban women. There are also some swings in some of the more Hispanic heavy parts, really one of the very few uh, places where we still do see some of those Hispanic trends kind of simplifying uh, from 2020 was in Prince William County. But really, I would say those three key counties, and I would say four, honestly, I would include Chesterfield County in here too, but Loudoun, Chesterfield, Virginia Beach, and Chesapeake, those are really the key places where we saw suburbanites, especially suburban women, switch their vote back to the GOP. It got Glenn Youngkin within 11 points in Loudoun. It won him Chesterfield by a good margin, and it won him Virginia Beach and Chesapeake by very good margins. He won Virginia Beach by over eight points, which isn't something that we've seen in a long time in Virginia. He won Chesapeake by a substantial margin, which again, not a thing that we've seen in Virginia for a good, for almost a decade now. So, you know, those are really, I think, the key voters. He turned back those, some of those suburbanite voters who were probably very sick and tired of Donald Trump and kind of the way he acted. They were much happier with what Glenn Youngkin does, how he presents himself, and to say, you know what, I want this guy as our governor. And it turned out to be pretty simple from there. Glenn Youngkin, we've mentioned it before, the dynamic of the race was how is he going to handle the Trump question? That's something every Republican on every ticket from now until whenever is going to have to answer. Uh, He figured it out, at least for this race, at least in Virginia. Uh, I think part of that story, though, isn't that he wanted to keep Trump at arm's length. It's that Trump stayed at arm's length. We're comparing them already. Let's compare them again. Uh, Donald Trump's not going to do that in Georgia. He's not going to do that in Arizona. Uh, is the Youngkin model replicable? Because I don't think Donald Trump is going to sit out these states where he already has them on his list for what I've kind of jokingly been called his vendetta ride, the people that he thinks has wronged him, like Georgia, like Arizona. Uh, I don't know that that's going to be replicable. What's the data telling you and what's your historical precedence telling you if Donald Trump stays involved in these midterm races, how scalable is Glenn Youngkin going to be? Because I I know everybody's going to want to extrapolate this to the midterms. I understand the historical trends to the midterms, but I don't know that what Glenn Youngkin pulled off here is going to work in very many other places for a couple different reasons. And one of them is I don't think Donald Trump's going to participate. I, I think you make a very good point. You know, what Trump has been shown to do is polarize races. Now, in this environment, uh, where we are right now, whether or not that translates to next year at this time, we have Election Day 2022. I don't know yet. You know, we've got we've got over 11 months to go before I can really say this is what we're going to look like here. But in the, what we have currently, I don't know that maybe even Trump going in would necessarily change the way some of these races might flip. However, I think if we have a much closer, you know, uh, time, you know, kind of margins and with Biden's approvals and everything come this time next year. You know, that could be a key difference in how we're seeing things act over these things. That could mean Trump's, you know, again, involvement in places like Arizona and Georgia could mean very heavily polarizing those races. And that could lead to, I think, some struggles uh, in Georgia specifically, I think for sure, uh, with the with our candidates there. Uh, in how they're going to be able to deal with, you know, the the Trump effect and him trying to in, in, indulge himself in these races to try what I do think is what he is going to try and uh, attempt to come back for 2024. Uh, before you get to 2024, though, there's still 2022, like you're talking about. Uh, Youngkin will be the governor. Uh, he's the governor like now. How big a deal is it that he got a House of Delegates to work with? Because that's something I don't think probably nobody saw coming that they're not only going to get the governorship, 
that they got the lieutenant governor race, they got the attorney general race, they got the House of Delegates back in Virginia. How big a deal is that for an incoming uh, governor who, he doesn't have a mandate, he has a very thin margin, but he's going to be able to probably get some stuff done now because of the way the swing of the state went. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, he, he is now going to be able to get some of those policy proposals done, or at least he's going to be able to fight for them, you know, with, with, with at least, you know, with the Democratic, very narrow Democratic majority in that state Senate still, you know, there will be some fights on some things. But now he's at least going to be able to get some of his policy ideas that he's going to be able to get them presented to the table, probably be able to pass the House of Delegates, and that they're going to be able to kind of move on in certain aspects of his policies that he's at least going to be able to have present to the Virginia people and say, this is what I'm fighting for, you know, convince your senator to pass it. And that's what he's going to really be fighting for. And, you know, that's something that I do think can work for him, it, you know, depending on how he presents it. But I do think that is something that in the end can work for him. And it's, it's a big, it is really a big deal and a big part of the puzzle that, you know, he was able to get this very narrow, but, you know, active Republican majority in the House of Delegates play the devil's advocate for a second the republicans are obviously writing high about virginia uh looking down the road though the dc experts aren't going to stop growing the state's not going to stop diversifying there's an argument from folks on the left that is starting to emerge that are hey this might be a one-off because glenn youngkin won but he has pretty much maxed out these rural areas which statistically he pretty much did this is probably not going to be replicable when the next governor's race come or the next statewide governor, do you see that as well? Do you see this as something that it worked this time, but there's still going to be, have to be more evolving of the Republican message. What do you say to that of, yeah, this looks really bad, but this may not be as catastrophic as it looks for team blue. You, I, I think they have a point, you know, the, those Nova exurbs are continuing to grow and that will make them bluer, but I think what at least the shifts, especially in Tidewater showed, is that those are still swing voters down there. You know, those there are voters who can still be convinced, who are willing to switch their vote from party to party. And as long as that still occurs and that can still happen, Virginia is still a competitive state. You know, at least at the statewide level. I don't know at the federal level how much that's true anymore. But at least at the statewide level, as long as that southeast quadrant of the state is swingy and they can be competitive, then I can't say that this can never be replicated within the next decade. I'm not going to be one to sit here and say this can't be replicated. But, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. We have to continue to see where Virginia is growing and how it kind of goes in the next four years. But, you know, I, I'm not going to be one to say never say never. But 2025, when that comes, is going to be a big challenge uh, for whoever the uh, nominee for governor is. But I don't think it's one that's implausible to beat. Well, I'll put you on the spot anyway. 2024, you're sitting down, you're doing your elections daily stuff. Is Virginia a swing state? No, I, I, I think it's a likely D state we started out with uh, in 2024 when it comes down to that presidential race. Uh, Democrats going to be uh, favored in the federal ways uh, for sure. Uh, Tim Kaine will almost certainly be heavily favored for re-election in that state. You know, it's very, very hard for me to say that uh, to see a, a path, unless it turns into somehow an absolute Republican blowout, uh, that Republicans federally wise come close in Virginia. But uh, I do think in 2024, whoever it is, whether it's Donald Trump again or if it's someone different, 
I do think they could improve upon what was the 10-point loss in Virginia in 2020, but I don't know how much that would be. Uh, looking ahead, everybody wants to extrapolate this off to 2022 in the midterms because we always have to go to the next election immediately because that is the most important election of our lifetimes, as you know. I've had a few more lifetimes than you, so I've heard it a little bit more than you, but just trust me, this is going to be as well, uh, which is good for you because that's your business model. But what what is cut through the noise for me a little bit? What is something that we should extrapolate from Virginia for 2022? Not just a buzzword or just not just the team jersey waving. What's something you're looking at and go, yeah, that's something that I'm going to bookmark and I'm going to be putting that into a lot of my 2022 analysis. Uh, I think there are two key things. One of uh, that Republicans messaging on the economy as it stands right now is going to work well. And that it is going to continue to work, especially driving out Republican voters in those rural areas, whether or not they might be high population uh, in all these swing states, that is going to turn out voters. And that those voters are very upset with how their bills look right now and how their costs are rising. And um, if that doesn't stop soon, that is something that is going to start to carry into these, you know, midterms. And that is something that is going to hurt uh, the Democrats as a whole. And number two is that suburban voters are still swingable in certain parts of the country. Like I said, you know, there might not have been a massive swing in Northern Virginia, but there was still a swing. And there was a pretty big swing down in the southeast in the suburban counties of Chesapeake and Virginia Beach. You know, that was a, a strong key right now uh, for Republicans that, look, there are still for suburban voters who they may have not really liked Donald Trump. But there are still some of them who are still definitely convincible out there for us to potentially win over in these midterms and take back our majorities in Congress. Hmm. Let's hit a couple of the numbers real quick to put a bow on the Virginia elections. A uh, lot of talk about the turnout, Democratic turnout. Was it depressed? Was it where it was supposed to be? Did it come in high? What did the numbers actually say? Not social media, the numbers. What did they tell you about the Democratic turnout? You know, looking at the numbers, what they showed to me is that turnout was up everywhere. Turnout was up for everybody. It just was not up for Democrats at nearly the level uh, it was for Republicans. And I do think part of that struggle comes from uh, a lack of uh, a good turnout in the Hampton Roads area. I'm talking about Hampton City, Portsmouth City uh, and, you know, Norfolk. You know, those those are the type of places uh, that when they they did not really turn out as massive levels as some of the other parts of the state did, you know those are heavy heavy democratic areas most of those uh, most of those areas, and that became a bit of a problem for sure, and you saw the results of that on uh, last Tuesday night, and I think you know again across the state compared to 2017, democratic turnout was way up. I mean Terry McAuliffe got more raw votes than Ralph Northam did when he won the state by nine points. Right. But just compared to what we saw in Republican turnout, just nowhere near the more the the uh, matching and the turnout rise compared to 2017 that we saw for Republicans in the state of Virginia. A lot of talk about women voters. Uh, they've been trying to parse them out between educated, uneducated. Was there a split worth mentioning between higher college educated women and non college educated women, or is that an overblown stat, or was that a deciding factor? I think that's a bit of an overblown stat that we saw from one exit poll. Uh, and we know from exit polls, those aren't necessarily always the most, you know, uh, accurate in the end. 
you know, I don't know how big that split was. I think there was at least probably somewhat of a split, but I do not believe that split was as big as some are making it out to be. Women as a whole just trended right way this year, uh, comparatively to 2020 uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And, you know, I think that's just the takeaway from that is that it's uh, Glenn Youngkin ran a message that was affable to women in Virginia uh, compared to what Donald Trump ran on. And uh, I think that's really the key takeaway from this in the end. Uh, you talked about it briefly before, but we'll touch on it again. You've talked about the Hispanic vote. Your term you used was simplifying. A lot of talk about how the Hispanic vote, uh, the way it looked on Election Day, wasn't exactly how the end data looked. Uh, the Hispanic vote, uh, obviously the AG that was elected first Hispanic statewide uh, office holder for the state of Virginia. So we want to recognize that. But Hispanic voters, uh, how did they end up shaking out at the end despite all the talk about them? You know, they didn't necessarily trend a lot from 2020 to 2021, but comparatively to 2017 to 2021, there were some trends. You know, again, like I said, in some of the Hispanic parts of Prince William County and some of the Hispanic parts of Virginia Beach, we did clearly see some trends there from 2017 of, you know, Hispanics who voted for Ralph Northam in 2017 voting for Glenn Youngkin in 2021. You know, again, I, I don't know how much this shift is going to be for Hispanics. I don't know how big or how wide it is going to be. But, you know, it, there's definitely a shift there. I'm going to see how much it's going to pay off in the end. We're going to see how much it matters. But there's a shift. Uh, it's there. And I do think that helped marginally. But it did help, I think, Glenn Youngkin in boosting his margins uh, in certain key parts of the state. Uh, and what about minorities? It seemed to me pretty clear that whatever early voting data the, the Terry McAuliffe campaign was getting, it was not good on minority numbers because they sure seem to be focusing on those sorts of issues on their closing days. That tells me their their data that they were getting was saying, hey, you better hit this and get your turnout up a little bit. How was the minority turnout and was there any noticeable trends there that Democrats might be needing to watch coming into the midterms in 2022? I wouldn't say there are necessarily any key trends, but I do think the level of turnout, especially among African-American voters, uh, should be concerning. Again, I'm, I'm going to mention these places again, Hampton, Portsmouth, and uh, Norfolk. Black Heavy minority areas. areas down in Hampton, too. It needs to be yeah, mentioned for just, people not familiar with the state. Big military presence down there. Very diverse area. Yeah, just they did not turn out as well as most of the groups in the state did. And again, that turned out to be a big issue. And, you know, I think an underrated message to that is that Terry McAuliffe did not really have a great turnout operation in the, you know, Hampton Roads, Tidewater area. His turnout, uh, you know, and his ground game there and his, you know, messaging down there was not very good. You know, a lot of the Democratic operators I spoke to felt like they were well uh, over, over strength, you know, overpowered in that part of the state compared to even Richmond and Nova. They felt they were well powered out of the state in Virginia Beach, you know, Chesapeake and, and that crucial area. And they say that I they think in the end that really hurt them and was a key factor in them losing. So that's that's something to think about, I think, is that I think Democrats took some of the votes down there in that part of the state for granted. And those people didn't turn out when they weren't talked to. And that, I think, came out to be a big problem. Real quick, let's touch on the lieutenant governor's race. Uh Winsome obviously has a lot of charisma, has a great backstory, uh, carries herself well. Uh, her election night speech was spectacular. I thought no matter what she thought of her politics, I just thought that was a great moment. But politically, let's talk data-wise, 
it was a very strange camp. She almost ran like a parallel campaign with Youngkin that never actually really intersected very much, didn't she? It It's very odd how she ran. She obviously won, but it was kind of strange the way it came out, was it not? Yeah, it it was an interesting race. You know, that that lieutenant governor's race wasn't necessarily one that we, we thought we were going to pull out in the end. Again, we felt we might lose that one by about a point. Obviously, that didn't turn out. Winsome basically matched Youngkin in almost every uh, aspect of the state. And, you know, it, it maybe you can argue that maybe just because it was an open race that it basically just went the way that the governor's race was going to go. But, uh, you know, Sears has an interesting backstory and has an interesting campaign to go off of here you know it'll be interesting to see how she continues to grow here as she gets into her role of lieutenant governor what she decides to do from here uh from her role as lieutenant governor but you know it's going to be a process for her to get back into the former legislature. she was a delegate for one term and but now she's gonna be back she's gonna be potentially breaking a good amount of ties in the state senate when they come to it so i'm gonna be very interested to see what she does and even though her campaign was weird, it was something that worked out. Yeah. And now I think she is definitely someone who is among the rising stars uh, for the Republican Party, at least, especially in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, Virginia, let's talk to those rising stars for a second. Virginia is unique in how they do their governor. They have the six-year term. You would only get the one term. Terry McAuliffe, it was non-consecutive. That's why he was running again. Uh, there, people are already planning and jockeying for position. It's way, way too early. But what's the plan for the Democrats to retake the governorship next time around? And who on the Republican side do you think is eyeballing uh, the mansion for governor? Because this is a unique state where you get pretty much a one-shot deal at it. Uh, that means people start jockeying the second you get the votes counted. So who do you see going next for that? You know, I do think I'll serve the easier side, which is the Republicans. Uh, what I've heard so far is that as of right now, of course, again, like you said, there's probably about three years before some of these decisions are officially made. But it sounds like that Winsome Sears will be given uh, first call compared to Jason Miares, who seems willing to stay in the attorney general's office uh, for another year if that so turns out to be the case. Uh, so I would say on the Republican side, I would say Winsome Sears, excuse me, is the uh, favorite. I, I hate to use that word with yeah. talking about a race that's three and a half years away. But uh, just the person who would be given first option, yeah. I would say, is the is the right word to be used there if she was one for governor. On the Democratic side, it's a lot more interesting, and I think there's a lot more uh, openness to analyze there. Uh, you know, you've got, you know, Jennifer McClellan's the only one of the big three in, in top three finishers in that Democratic Party of Terry McAuliffe, Jennifer Carroll Foy, and herself. That's still in office. She's still a state senator. It's a safe down seat. So she's going to have three years to kind of be able to posture from there almost and to build up a brand from that. You know, Jay Jones, who ran against Mark Herring in the Democratic primary for attorney general, is someone that I could very easily see running again. And, uh, you know, there's going to be, I think, names that we don't even know about probably that are going to think about running. And there's there's going to be a lot of options for Democrats. I think in 2025, it could very well be a very, very open primary for them. I don't know if that's going to work for them. I don't know if it's going to hurt them. But I think there's going to be a lot of options for Democrats to choose from when it comes to 2025 compared to what they had here in 2021, where it's basically a sure thing from McAuliffe. 
Joseph Mansky, this has been great. I, I, you know, we talk about turning down the noise. I think this is about the right period because this was a really noisy race, especially the way it turned out. Uh, thank you for bringing the data into it to kind of cap it off because I think there is a lot to learn here. Uh, and I think before you try to extrapolate it out to your next thing, we need to take a minute to learn what happened here. So thank you for that. Let people know where to find you on social media. Uh, give them the elections daily pitch because I tell people to use it all the time, but you're on the inside. Uh, you do have that big merger, I guess we'll call it, with uh, Decision Desk. So you guys are national players now. Congratulations. But let people know where they can find your work in Elections Daily because uh, it's already midterm season now. We're going to start talking about it nonstop, and they're going to need to know where to get good information from. Yeah, you can follow me personally uh, at Joseph Samansky on Twitter. That's S-Z-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I. Uh, that's where you see me post most of my uh, own personal uh, analyze, uh, analysis on certain races and uh, Elections Daily. It's just at elections underscore daily on Twitter. We're now officially part of Decision Desk HQ, and we've got a lot of great things that we're going to be rolling out very soon for you guys. Uh, me personally, I'm taking a little bit of a break uh, from <laughs> actually writing stuff uh, until after Thanksgiving, in which then, in which case, then I'll be I'm, uh, back around the start of December, uh, maybe even mid December, depending on how busy my finals period is for my uh, fall semester here at college. But uh, once that is all set and done, uh, you'll see me back. Like like Andrew said, I'll be right back into the 2022 midterms. There's a lot of states to look at. I'm definitely be focusing on a lot of uh, the mid uh, the mid Atlantic states, especially Pennsylvania, my home my home state. Uh, yeah. We've got a couple of really crucial key races there for sure. So you'll be see you'll be seeing me say a lot uh, about that right there for sure. So uh, keep if you guys are listening for those listening, uh, keep in touch. Uh, go ahead and follow us, and uh, we'll. Be very excited to welcome me into our family. You got your spelling for Fetterman all down pat by this point, I take it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Might be writing that name a time or two the next uh, 11, 12 months or so. Uh, Joe Zemanski, thank you so much. Enjoy that break. The Shenandoah in the fall is one darn fine, beautiful place to be. Uh, I know that because our oldest went just down the road from you to Bridgewater. So I'm mm. familiar with the area. It's a nice area. Uh, if you got to be in Virginia, you know, it's not a bad spot to be. So enjoy the fall. Enjoy your break, my friend. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on soon to talk more election stuff. So thank you, my friend. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate you, sir. When it comes to hotly contested elections like we saw in Virginia and trying to extrapolate them out into the larger national political narratives, it's more important than ever to do what we try to do here on Hertel. Turn down the noise, get to the information, talk to people who know what they're talking about and are knowledgeable on the subject, and try to extract the truth we need, not just hearing the things we want to hear. Now, there's going to be a lot of talk about this race between now and the midterms. It's going to get shoehorned into the national narratives. Everybody's going to take from it what they went into it looking for. We don't want to do that. We want to take the information and apply it to the times that we live in. That's why we go to people like the Elections Daily folks, like Joe, like Cunningham, who has been on the show before, because they give us the information and analysis. And it's not that they're not flawed, they're not biased, even though they called this race exactly right. They also do what they did after this selection that they've done before in previous elections. They sat down and said, here's what we got right, here's what we got wrong, and here's what we're going to do going forward. I like to support people like that, because even though they're not perfect, Perfect like everybody else, they came from a good place of saying, hey, we think we can do election coverage better than what's out there. We're going to do it ourselves. And they've done it. And now they're starting to get national recognition for it. It's kind of a theme that we've developed with our own Herd Tell show here ourselves. 
If you don't like your media that you're getting, especially the news media, get involved and do it yourself. If you've got a phone, if you've got a social media account, you can be media. Get out there and do it, and the Election Daily folks have done it. And it's great on an important race like the Virginia governor's race and the down-ballot race where we saw something unexpected that you get good information so that maybe you aren't as shocked and shaken as other people who are just following the narratives and not actually following what's going on. That's going to do it for this edition of Hertel. Continue to follow us wherever you get your podcasts at. We've also got the YouTube channel going, including our first couple of video packages of these. Uh, excited about that. So anytime you get a chance on whatever platform it is, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, whatever, if it gives you the option to leave a comment and a rating, please do so. It's really important to let people know that our program is worth checking out. We're going to keep doing it as long as you keep listening and reacting. If you give us feedback, we will try to answer that as best we can. If you're on Twitter, make sure you follow us at Hertel Show. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Four for the Fire. That's spelled out for numerical for the fire. We'd love to hear from you. We enjoy interacting with you. Give us good feedback. We'll be happy to talk to you about it. Till we talk to you again on Hertel Show, we hope wherever this finds you across the street or around the world, you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. Until we talk to you next time, y'all take care. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.